Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 2, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. This is God's word. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful on any, lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a wither hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the wither hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Thank you, Ryan. <clears throat> Dear friends, have you ever worked on your computer and became super frustrated because it began to slow down. You saw the dreaded spinning cursor that seemingly won't go away. I remember a time where after every letter I typed, it would pause and then the letter would appear. I would write a sentence and it would take five seconds later for that sentence to appear. I thought I was gonna go crazy. Now in those moments when your computer is super sluggish and slow, what do you do? You look at task manager. You try to discover what's bogging my computer down. And so you pull up task manager, and to no surprise, you see that your CPU capacity is at 100%. Every ounce of that machine is being utilized at that moment. And then you look over to the right, and you see the number of apps that are all running at the same time. And you say to yourself, no wonder why my computer is so slow, and you had no idea that this many apps was running in the background. The only way then to get your computer back to normal health is by deleting those apps, removing it, freeing up memory so that it can go back to normal work. Aren't we very similar as human beings? Dear friends, how many apps are running in the background of your life right now? At what capacity is your mind, body, and soul currently operating? 80%, 85%, some of us 9,500. 
What do you find yourself constantly ruminating about, constantly worrying about, constantly thinking about? What percentage of your mind is preoccupied by your career, by your studies, by your social life, your marriage, your kids, your health, your aging parents, politics, the news, the, the coronavirus? When you add up all of these apps running in your life, how is that bogging you down? How is that slowing you down? Do you have margins in your life, space in your life, so that when the inevitable problem occurs, so that when your car starts to break down, when your kid gets in trouble at school, when your mom calls you and tells you that she keeps forgetting things, do you have enough margin and space in your life to be able to handle what life throws at you? Or is the baseline of your life so high you have no room for these problems? And you slow down and you burn out and you tire out. One writer believes that our culture suffers from toxic productivity. We're addicted to produce, we're addicted to achieve, we're addicted to work. Our schedules are jam-packed with activities during the week and on the weekend. We do our best to schedule and make use of every single hour so that we can get ahead of our peers at work, so that we can play our lives out on the weekend, leaving us stretched thin with no margins. How many of us are left irritable? We lose patience at the slightest inconvenience when traffic piles up, when something doesn't go according to our schedule, we say to ourselves, I don't have time for this. Is there a better way? The Bible says, yes, God has a better design for our lives, a better rhythm for our lives. In our scripture reading today, you have two separate incidents that occur. The first is Jesus' disciples plucking heads of grain as they walk through a field. The second is Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And these two incidents may look like they have nothing in common, but they're actually linked together. Both incidences happen on the Sabbath, and both incidents lead to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, attacking Jesus for violating and breaking the Sabbath. And in both situations, when he is attacked, Jesus does not back down. He defends himself. He asserts himself. And not only does he uh, prove to the, the Pharisees that he has not violated the Sabbath, but he goes one step further. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I haven't just obeyed it. I am the Sabbath's Lord. Talk about an audacious and bold statement here. 
And this declaration is the linchpin, the central theme of our passage. And what I'm going to do today is give you three reasons why Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Reason number one, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath because he authored it. He authored it. In verse 27, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus points us, to, points us back to when the Sabbath was first made. He points us back to Genesis 1. And though it's not expressly stated here in our passage, we know from rest of scripture that Jesus was actually there when the Sabbath was instituted. John 1 verse 3 declares all things were made through him, meaning Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, as the eternal son of God, was there at creation, and all things were made through him, and that includes the Sabbath. He is the one who authored it. And if you think about it, the word author is where we get the word authority. Authority is a derivative of the word author. And it makes sense, right? Because an author has ultimate authority over something. For example, let's say you watched a movie and you were confused about one of the scenes. It's like one of those high-tech sci-fi movies directed by Christopher Nolan, right? It's like it went over your head, and so you're like, what is that about? And so you go home and you look on the internet, what does this scene mean? And all of a sudden, you find yourself on a forum where all of these hundreds of fans are giving their take as to what that scene signified. Some of the explanations are outrageous, others are more credible. But then at the bottom of that forum, the director himself gives the explanation. This is what I meant. This is what the character is doing. This is what it's all about. Now, of all those explanations, which one are you going to believe? The director, of course. He created that scene. He authored it. He has ultimate authority. In the same way, Jesus is telling us, I was there. I am the author. I created the Sabbath. So don't attack me for breaking it. I'm the one who made it. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. By the way, as an aside, How many billions of people throughout history have tried to understand the significance of life who've tried to figure out man's purpose, man's design, who have tried to figure out what it looks like for man to thrive. So many answers by so many, you know, millions of people. Who should we look to to give us the final answer? The author, the creator. This leads us to reason number two. The second reason why Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is because he restores the Sabbath. I'm going to spend most time on this point. He restores the Sabbath. When you restore an old, beat-up car, what is your goal? 
Your goal is to try to bring back the car's original glory. You're trying to bring it back to its original beauty. And sometimes that's not easy because as a car ages, paint begins to fade, metal begins to rust, the seats start to rip, the leather begins to crack. As time passes by, the car is so disheveled, so deteriorated, sometimes it's barely recognizable. Restoration then is a process of bringing it back to its original glory. That's what Jesus is doing here with the Sabbath. Over time, the Sabbath command had undergone so much decay, built up so much rust, it's barely recognizable. The religious leaders over the centuries have tacked on so many man-made rules to the command, so many different applications, that the Sabbath was reduced to simply a list of do's and don'ts to navigate. It became a list of man-made rules and prohibitions. Let me share a few of these man-made rules. One law dictated how far you could travel on the Sabbath. It said you may not take more than 1,999 paces. You take 1998 paces, 1999 paces, it's okay. But if you take 2,000 paces, you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Kind of arbitrary, right? Another law stated that it was uh, unlawful to untie a knot on the Sabbath. So if you mistied your sandals, you had to keep it there until the next day. If you mistied your horse to the barn, you had to keep it there. No knot may be untied on the Sabbath because that's considered work. Another law said that if you tear a hole in your garment, you may not apply more than one stitch. Just one stitch, not two. If you do two, you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Apparently, Picking heads of grain was another man-made law that Jesus and his disciples broke, and the Pharisees are all over him. You shouldn't have eaten that grain. You should have just gone hungry. Apparently, there was another law that said, you may not heal on the Sabbath. Jesus, instead of healing that man's hand today, you should have waited till tomorrow. Such was the nature of the Sabbath in Jesus' day. The Sabbath was like an obstacle course, or it's like those Mission Impossible movies where you got to kind of avoid all the laser beams in a room lest the alarms go off. This is what the Sabbath devolved to. And so Jesus attempts to restore it back to its original glory. And so what does he do? He points back to Scripture Enough with the man-made rules and tradition. Let's go back to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? And he points to 1 Samuel 21 and shows that there's precedence from David and his men of eating and plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Instead of fighting tradition with tradition, he eliminates the tradition with Scripture. 
And another way that Jesus restores the Sabbath is by helping us see what the Sabbath is for rather than being preoccupied with what the Sabbath is against. He helps us frame the Sabbath not so much in the lens of restriction, but through the lens of refreshment. He says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This Sabbath command, believe it or not, was created to serve man, to replenish man, to restore man, not to enslave man, not to stifle man. As humans, we need rest. We have limitations. We need sleep seven to eight hours a day. God says we need to take aside a day to rest every week. If we don't, it's only a matter of time before we burn out, stress out, and check out. And some of us have checked out and all we do is numb out on the weekends. Being constantly busy, overscheduling our weeks with incessant activity is not what God intended for us. One day a week, God wants us to rest from worldly engagement and to rest in Him and feed our souls on the things of God, to do things that nourish our spirits, to do things that make us whole. He has given us so many good gifts. Public and private worship, fellowship with his people, reflection, prayer, meditation. Imagine what your life would look like if you had a regular rhythm where for 24 hours you spent and set aside that time to just be still and engage and reflect and meditate on the things of God. Yet there's more to the Sabbath than just refreshment. In chapter 3, Jesus also points us to another purpose of the Sabbath, and that's to remind us of heaven. After healing the man's withered hand, Jesus asks a rhetorical question in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? The obvious answer is, duh, to do good. That's what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus points to an, another underlying purpose of the Sabbath, and that is to point us to heaven. In the book of Hebrews, the author sees the Sabbath rest that we are supposed to enjoy here on earth as a picture, a foreshadowing of our heavenly rest that we will one day enjoy with him in heaven. The Sabbath was instituted by God as a signpost, a foretaste of what we will enjoy in glory in heaven. It's God's way of saying to us, you weren't created for this world. You were ultimately created 
for me in glory. And this explains why on the Sabbath day, he commands us to do things that are heavenly. What will we do in heaven? Worship. And that's why God's people throughout the ages on the Sabbath, on Sundays, gather together to worship. What else do we do in heaven? We sing, so we sing. We'll eat and drink with him, so we'll have the Lord's Supper. We fellowship with God's people. We gather together with God's people instead of worshiping alone by ourselves. What else is true of heaven? Heaven is a place where there is no more suffering, no more hunger, no more pain, no more disease, no more handicaps, where every effect of the fall is totally removed, no more withered hands. You see, when Jesus is healing this man of the withered hand, in a way, Jesus is giving this man a picture of what he will experience in heaven, where we will be made whole. And so what's appropriate on the Sabbath? To do things that are heavenly, to live in such a way where we are poster boards of heaven to other people to bless them and serve them and show them this is what heaven looks like this is what love looks like in heaven there's peace there's harmony there's service and so jesus tells us to do good as you can see jesus restores the sabbath by pointing us back to scripture and away from the glut of man-made tradition. He restores the Sabbath by pointing us back to how the Sabbath is designed to refresh us and make us thrive. He restores the Sabbath by helping us see how the Sabbath is ultimately heavenly. And this leads us to the third and final reason why Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath, not only because he's the author, and he restores, he is Lord of the Sabbath because he is our Sabbath rest. He is the Sabbath. There's a reason why our culture is addicted with productivity, why it's addicted with busyness, why the vast majority of time when you ask someone, how are you doing? If they're not saying, I'm fine, I'm good, they're saying what? Busy. It's because underneath the busyness, underneath the frenetic activity, ultimately lies a longing to prove ourselves. A longing to demonstrate our worth. A longing to prove our value and significance. That's why we work and study so hard. That's why rewards and recognition mean so much to us, while criticism can devastate us. We want to show people, we want to show our peers, we want to show ourselves that we are a somebody. This is why we play so hard. We say to ourselves, I want to not just be mediocre in my recreation. I want to go full blast and I'm going to post it on my social media feed so other people will envy me, so that other people will see how happy I am, 
how flourishing I am, because the more people see how hard and good I play, the better I feel about myself. There's this sinister desire underneath to show our worth. Even for me, I've been so anxious about preaching this sermon in the last 24 hours. A sermon on rest, I was so like caught up with. And during worship, that second song, All I Have is Christ, is when the light bulb turned on for me. The reason why I'm so anxious is because I want people to like this sermon. Because if people like this sermon, then they like you, Jeff. I'm tethering my preaching to my self-worth. We all get into that trap, that treadmill of performance where we're trying to showcase our worth, where we're trying to show people I'm significant. That desire is always at play. If you have kids, again, you strive so hard. You drive around town. You shuttle them around. You give them a, a wide variety of extracurricular activities. Why? Perhaps because underneath it all, you want to prove to yourself that you're a good dad. You're a good mom. So that one day your kids might recognize your worth. And so we slave away. Society calls this ambition. The Bible calls this enslavement. We are slaves to approval. And this is why Deuteronomy chapter 5 is helpful. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you have the Ten Commandments. And the Sabbath command is the fourth commandment. And in verses 13 and 14, God gives the what of the commandments. He tells Israel what to do on the Sabbath, to rest and to worship, to rest in him. But then in verse 15, he gives the why of the Sabbath command. He says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. He says, I want you to rest and set aside a day from worldly labor. Why? So that you might remember you are no longer a slave to this world. Unlike everyone else, you don't have to prove your worth. You don't have to prove your significance. You belong to me. Stop looking at the work of your hands to showcase how important you are. Instead, rest in my nail-pierced hands. That will show you how important you are. Stop defining yourself by what you do. Instead, see yourself in light of what Jesus has done. You no longer have to prove your worth to the world because Jesus has proven your worth to the world. Do you know how significant you are? You are worth living for, dying for, being crucified for by no other than the Son of God. That's how worthy you are. 
That's how precious you are to me. Nothing you do here in this world can compare to what Christ has done for you. So put down that hammer and chisel. Stop trying so hard to make a name for yourself. You belong to me. Rest in me. Dear friends, are you tired of striving? Are you tired of running on this treadmill of performance? I believe many of us suffer from uh, apnea. Not sleep apnea, spiritual apnea. You know, sleep apnea is all about not being able to get a good night's rest because the flow of oxygen is disrupted. And so you're constantly waking up. You never really hit deep sleep. You never really experience REM sleep, which your body really needs. I can't help but wonder if that describes us. How many of us are getting that deep spiritual rest God wants us to have? We kind of rest, but we don't go really deep. How many of our souls are living off of naps rather than sleep? In our service here, 15 minutes of reading and prayer there, we're just getting little naps to get by. No wonder why we're so exhausted. They say that faith is like starting a fire. To start a fire, what are the elements you need? First, you need fuel, right? Wood, charcoal, something that will burn. The other thing you need is something to ignite it. A flame, a spark, a lighter. Now, is that all we need for a fire? A lot of people forget that the third element that a fire needs is space. It needs oxygen. It needs to be spread out. It needs to be in the open. I can't help but think that many of us have the ingredients, the fuel. We have worship. We have the scriptures. We have prayer. We have the body of Christ. We have the spark, we have the Holy Spirit that starts our faith. But we're like, why, why aren't we growing? We're stymied, we're stifled, we're frustrated. Perhaps it's because we're like a pile of wood in this tight container. And we keep trying to light it, but it won't start because there's no oxygen to breathe. We don't have the space in our life to allow the Holy Spirit to grow our faith, to nourish our faith. We need time to meditate on God's word. We need time of unhurried prayer. We need time to reflect and evaluate our lives. But any space we have in our lives, we fill it with social media, we fill it with our news feeds, we fill it with music, with podcasts, we're bombarded with information 24-7. There's no room for our faith to breathe. 
Dear friends, the Lord has made it clear we flourish and thrive when we set aside time to rest. The Sabbath is a gift from God. The question is, are you going to receive this gift? Are you going to open this gift? Are you going to rest in him? Reflect in what Christ has done for you. See who you are in Christ. Meditate on heaven that is waiting for you. Be a blessing to those around you. Are you going to unwrap this gift and enjoy it for the good of your soul? Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for the gift of the Sabbath. And yet, Lord, we confess that we have not taken advantage of it enough. We confess, O Lord, that we have allowed culture around us to dictate our schedules more than your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to carve out time to say no to things, to say yes to other things, so that our soul might feast upon you. And so, Lord, help us to experience the blessing of the Sabbath. May our lives be a reflection of your divine wisdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.